good morning or good afternoon. I don't know what what to call it when it's 11, you know. So, um, <clears throat> I don't normally do this, um, but I just wanted to do this today. I wanted to publicly honor my wife today um, because, you know, for the last two years, you know, I've been finishing up school and um, I help out at another church nearby every other week. Um, and also I work full time and, you know, she offers a lot of support and she sacrifices a lot for me to get a lot done. And, uh, you know, like Pastor Rod Dewberry, one of my friends said, you know, I don't have a typical wife, I have a biblical wife. And I thank God for her and I thank you too, Lisa. So I just want to say that. Um, so the text for today is Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. I thought somebody was going to come and read it, but I'll read it. Um, here we go. Who had believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did <clears throat> esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence. <clears throat> Neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He had put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and he shall be satisfied." By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord God, without you here, nothing happens. I invite you here, God. I invite your presence to do your work. Lord God, I pray that you would expose our hearts and then build our hearts back up again. Father God, I pray for those who are here who have their face turned away from the cross. Oh God, would you reach down and touch them so that their eyes would turn back onto Jesus. Lord God, I pray for those who are facing the cross right now that you would just draw them one foot closer to the cross, God. Lord God, we pray today that you would just draw us closer, draw us nearer to you, O oh God. And Lord God, search our hearts right now. 
I invite your presence, your spirit, to meet us where we are. Every need that we have, every struggle and every question that we have, oh God, I invite you to reach down, cut through our callous and numb heart, and just speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, many of you know that I like cooking. You know that I like baking, obviously. Now, um, my Instagram handle before used to be Chef Happy Data because my son used to call me Happy Data. I don't have that anymore. But anyway, one of the worst things that can happen when you're cooking is that uh, you start the process before you account for the ingredients that you have. You know, when you start cooking and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, I just ran out of what I needed. Or you realize that the, ingredients, the ingredient that you needed has just expired. But fortunately, you know, you could go online on Google and you have all these life hacks and tips that you can find. You know, for example, did you know that if you don't have um, sour cream, you could substitute uh, yogurt? Did you know that if you don't have breadcrumbs, you can make breadcrumbs from crushed crackers? Did you know that, um, uh, let's say for example, you want to make buttermilk pancakes and you don't have buttermilk at home. You take some milk and you put lemon juice and you let it sit. And then that substitutes for that. All right, I know it's getting close to lunchtime, so I'm going to stop there with the food analogy. But think about a basketball game. Think about uh, uh, like team sports. When you watch a basketball game, you know, eventually players get tired. They lose steam. They lose motivation. Uh, sometimes they might get injured. So what, what, does, what does the coach do? He calls a timeout. And then he substitutes his player. So one player goes out of the game. Another player goes into the game. He, so he subs in. He's the substitute. I think you all know where I'm going with this. Isaiah 53 is about substitution. Isaiah 53 is about the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. You see, 700 years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah wrote this prophecy to the nation of Israel to comfort them, to encourage them to have faith, that they would believe that someone is coming to save them from suffering, from sickness, from sin. This was to encourage them. And he tells them that this person will eventually be rejected and brutalized, that it would lead to his death. But his death will be the way that they receive deliverance and healing and restoration. Now for us, 700 years, I mean 2,000 years after Christ, it still speaks to us. This passage is about the one who has come and who has delivered us and who does offer us healing. And the same thing that they had to do, which is to keep faith, we need to do as well to receive what, what this person offers us. Have faith. Now, Let's go back to the kitchen for a second. Think about that yogurt. When you substitute that yogurt, right, all you see is the yogurt. All you know is what the yogurt does for your recipe. But have you thought about the other side? Have you ever once considered what happened to that sour cream that you didn't have that's sitting on that refrigerated shelf at Stop and Shop? Have you thought about it ever, that sour cream? It's sitting there unopened. It's spared. It doesn't have to be purchased. It, it gets to sit there and, and enjoy preservation for another day, probably until Tuesday 
Because on Tuesday, we eat tacos, right? But that's the sour cream. But what about, let's go back to the basketball game. What about the, the, the substitute, right? We see the one who comes into the game. We see what the substitute does for the team. But do we ever think about the player that just sat down? There is an exchange that happens. The substitute comes in for one player, but do you know what the other player who just sat down receives? He receives the, the, the rest of the substitute. The rest. He gets to enjoy the rest that the substitute was enjoying on the bench. There is an exchange that happens. The message of Isaiah 53 is this. Jesus Christ has saved us from suffering and sin through his substitutionary death on the cross. By taking our place on the cross, Jesus saves us from suffering and sin. But don't forget the other side, the other part. Remember, this is an exchange. When he takes our place, don't forget that we get something. Because we always say, well, you know what? Jesus died on the cross for me. But don't forget what you received, the exchange. What is it that you receive? You receive his peace. You receive his joy. You receive his forgiveness. You receive a relationship with the Father. Because he has substituted himself for you, you now get to experience what is his. Let's look at verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our inequities. Let's talk about sin. Let's talk about sin. When God created a woman and uh, man and woman, when God created us, when God created humanity, He created us with free will. Although limited, He created us with free will. He gave us the ability to choose right or wrong, the ability to choose to love Him, the ability to choose to serve Him. He, he gave us free will. And because He gave us free will, Unfortunately, in the garden, we chose disobedience. We chose sin. And since then, since that time, we have fallen into sin. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We have fallen short of the holy standard that God had. And, and therefore, there is a great debt. There is a great debt to be paid. In the Old Testament, to pay for a debt... You know, uh, the head of the household would usually perform this offering called a burnt offering. You know, this burnt offering was to, uh, to atone for the sin nature of the family and to also make the relationship right again between you and God or your family and God. And you take an animal or sometimes in some cases you take a bird and you chop it up, you place it on the altar and then you burn it up. And that was the way that you cover your sins. Unfortunately, they had to do it every day. They had to do it morning and evening every day because, because it didn't completely take away the sin. It just covered the sin up. Now, in Scripture, one of the first uh, uh, instances that we see of a burnt offering is Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis chapter 22, God comes to this man called Abraham and he says, I want you to take your son to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Now, now, we know when we read it that God was testing Abraham. And, and the writers of Hebrew has told us that when Abraham uh, heard this message from God, he knew that God also had the power to raise his son up. So Abraham takes Isaac up to the mount. And then Isaac looks around. And he says, Father, 
I see the wood. I see the fire. But where is the lamp? And then Abraham turns to his son and he says, My son, God will provide himself a lamp for the burnt offering. And then as he places that knife down onto his son on the altar, God intervenes and spares his son. Abraham turns around and he sees a ram caught in the bush. And now that ram becomes a substitute for his son. But that doesn't answer Isaac's question. Where is the lamb? A ram is not a lamb, guys. So where is that lamb? Well, we fast forward to John chapter 1 where John says, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is the lamb. Jesus is the lamb. I mentioned to you also, what does the burnt offering do? It restores your relationship with God again. It restores your relationship with God. It makes you okay with God again, but it only makes you okay temporarily. And so Job chapter 9 verse 2 gives us this question that mankind, I believe, has had from the beginning of time that every human being, every woman and man has in their heart right now. Job chapter 9 verse 2. It says, how can a man be made right with God? How can a man or a woman be made right with God? And if we fast forward again to Revelation chapter 5, we see the answer there. And it says, through the blood of the Lamb. Through the blood of the Lamb. Once and for all, the debt has been paid through the blood of the Lamb. That debt that we owed, it has been paid through Jesus' blood. And many people will ask, well, why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't God just forget? Why couldn't God just forgive without a, pen, without a price to be paid? You know, why couldn't God just snap his fingers or just say, you know what, I just forgive it? Why couldn't he do that? People will ask, why did Jesus have to die? Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he has a great quote to answer that. And he says, if you ever really forgiven somebody, forgiven some real wrong, all forgiveness is suffering. If you say I forgive and I didn't suffer, it wasn't really that serious of wrong. But if you have ever really truly been wronged and you have forgiven it, then you have suffered. Because all forgiveness is a form of suffering. If someone has wronged you deeply, there is an indelible sense of debt and injustice, a feeling you just can't shrug off. And once you sense this deep injustice, this debt, there are only two things you can do. One is you can make the perpetrator pay. You can find ways to make the perpetrator suffer and pay down the debt. Or two, you can forgive. And he says... All forgiveness is a form of suffering. And Pastor Tim Keller, he comments on this quote. He says, If someone has really wronged you, you have to forgive them. If you don't, you'll be taken over by bitterness. When you want to pay someone back and you don't pay them, when you don't make them pay, you suffer. When you want to make someone suffer and you don't make them suffer, you suffer. And Isaiah 53 is God's suffering. Isaiah 53 
is God not making you pay it back? Look at verse 4 now. Surely he had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Surely he had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Jesus not only suffered with us, Jesus suffered for us. Jesus suffers with us on the cross, but ultimately Jesus suffers for us. There's a lot of sorrow in the world today. But for a moment, can I just bring it down to a personal level? Can I bring it down to our church? There are many in, our, many in this room that are, that are suffering with sickness and illness. Because there is sin in this world, there will also be suffering. Where there is sin, there will be sickness, there will be sorrow, there will be pain. And some of us in this room, we have been struggling with recurring neck pain, back pain, knee pain. Some of us, we have been struggling with headaches. We have been struggling with hormonal issues, infertility. There are those of us who are struggling with the effects of a stroke, heart disease, COPD. Some of us here are dealing with depression, anxiety, rapid pacing thoughts, the inability to focus. But regardless of the severity, I don't minimize any of it. I don't minimize the pain that you feel. I don't minimize the struggle because it is real. It is something that you're dealing with. But can I tell you for a second that God is not passive, that God is not ignoring you. God does not abandon you in your pain and your sickness. God knows. God knows what you're going through. And he sees you and he sees the pain. He sees the suffering and he cares. And he loves you. Then there are those in this room or around us, or people that we know that are experiencing a different type of sorrow. The single mother, raising her two children, living with the pain of broken hopes and broken dreams, not, not, not enjoying the life that she imagined she would have. The man dealing with addiction, who just can't seem to break that cycle, who's lost hope. The woman that's that's been waiting years to conceive, and then when she finally does, it ends in miscarriage. The child growing up with the stigma of a broken family and wishes that he or she had some more social support. The son and the daughter who wish they had a father around. The son and the daughter who wish they could restore their relationship with their parents. Men and women who have been betrayed, who have been abused, who have been taken advantage of, and who are still dealing with the effects of that right now today. God sees your pain. God sees your struggle. And God sees your sorrow. He has not abandoned you. He has not abandoned you. In John chapter 11... We see the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. 
And before that happens, you know what the scripture says? It says, and Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. God made it a point to let us know that he loved them before the storm came. God loves you before your suffering. God loves you through your suffering. And God loves you after your storm, your suffering. God loves you. Don't question the love of God while you go through this suffering. He sees you and he sees your pain. He sees it. And you know what he does? He comes down onto that cross. He stretches out his arm and he says, this is how much I love you. He looks down from heaven and his heart is broken for the suffering that you're facing. And he says, no more of this. And he has to rid the world of sin because if he rids the world of sin, then he can rid the world of suffering. And so he sees your pain. And Isaiah 53 shows you that he not only tells you that he loves you, but he is a God that shows you that he loves you. And you know what that exchange is? That exchange is this. You get to experience something that he has now. You get to experience his power to break addiction. You get to experience his presence in your life when you need him to keep you going every day. You get to experience his provision when you need to be supplied of every need in every chapter of your life. And guess what? He still gives healing. He still does miracles. But I also want to tell you, if your healing doesn't come, if your resolution does not come on this side of eternity, because guess what? Peter suffered a little while. Job suffered a long while. But Paul suffered a lifetime. For some of us here, our pain may not be alleviated. We might have to suffer a long time. But can I tell you that Jesus Christ has come to die on the cross for our sin and our suffering so that he could give you his peace to endure through the suffering. He gives us his joy to endure through this. He gives us that. Jesus has suffered with us and Jesus suffered for us. He knows your suffering. He knows your pain. And he, he knows what it feels like. And he has not left you. And he loves you deeply. How much does he love you? Look at verse 10. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When I first heard that uh, we were expecting Judah, you know, our son, you know, that, that, was a, <clears throat> that was a joyful moment, but it didn't really hit me. You know, it took months for it to hit me. The, the time that it hit me was when we went to our doctor's appointment and I heard the heartbeat. And that's when it hit me. You, you never forget that moment you hear the heartbeat. And so for the next few months, you know, while my wife is enjoying seeing his footprint on her belly and all this, I got to be honest, I didn't really try to feel it because it felt kind of like weird to me, like an alien was in her stomach. So I'm going to be honest with you. I never really touched her stomach to feel that kick. All right, it was weird for me. But anyway, it was still a memory for her, and I got to see it. And then finally, you know, January 6th, my wife calls me saying her water broke, 
and I'm at work and I rush to the hospital to meet her. And then, you know, she goes through the pregnancy, some complications, but the Lord provided and came through and we had our son and he had to stay there for about three days in the hospital. And you know that feeling you get like, oh man, my PTO just started. I just got time off. I don't want to spend the next three days in the hospital. I want to go home with my family, right? So you're getting anxious. You're like, I hope this, you know, it hurries up. And then the, doc- the doctor comes and he's like, you got to stay another day because his bilirubin is up. We got to keep him under the light so that we had to experience that he's under the light. And then finally, the fourth night, we get released. And that day, you know, it's snowing. It's not a snowstorm, but it's still snowing. And you know, even if there wasn't snow, you know how it is when you have a child for the first time, you're taking them home, you drive on the right lane of the highway and you're going so slow, you're so careful, right? You put your high school and college days behind you, right? So I'm driving real slow now in the snow. We get home finally, there's a group of family members there to welcome us. It's a joyful moment, it's a memory we'll never forget, the first day that we brought our son home. And then I, I remember the first time that, uh, uh, you know, he smiled. And, you know, the first time he smiled, you know, it's usually in their sleep. So what do we do? We take out our phone and we start to record him while, while he's smiling in his sleep. We record it. We don't take pictures because if you take a picture, you miss it. So we record it. We watch the video. We hit the screenshot. And then we get to save it as a picture. So that's the first smile that we experienced. And then after that, we get to see him sit up. Later on, we get to see him pull up the stand. Then we start taking videos of the first time he takes his first steps. Eventually, when he's about a year or so, he says his first word. And his first word is Bible. You know, probably because I'm always like, Lisa, stop reading your Bible. Spend time with me. You know, we're giving the Bible. So anyway, first word is Bible. Second word was data. All right? And then... And then as time goes on, I start to experience more with my son. The first time he gives me a hug. The first time he says, I love you. You know, at nighttime, even now, he wants to sleep with mama, not really next to dada. I I guess that's normal. But there was a time when a couple years ago, he sleeps right in between us. He sleeps next to mama and I'm like, you're not going to come sleep with dada? I'm sad. He rolls over to me, gives me a kiss, and then he rolls right back over to mama. You know, these memories, these memories. First time I heard him singing. First time he memorized a a scripture verse. The first time he, he learned his alphabet. The first day that I took him to preschool. Recently, he just started reading. All these experiences, all these memories that I'm having with my son. I'll give you one more. And then yesterday I'm at the barber shop and the barber goes, first of all, you know what a barber shop is like. Or at least guys, you know what a barber shop is like. You know the cultural exchange that happens at a, a barber shop. You know the, the wisdom that gets exchanged, right, among barbers and customers. So then we're at the barber shop and the barber looks over at my son. And he says, what do you want to do when you grow up? He says, I want to be a preacher. And then the barber says, you want to be a picture? <laughs> and I'm just sitting there like, I'm not going to correct any of this. So he said, picture? No, I want to be a preacher. And then he said, a teacher? And the Judah goes, 
No, I want to be a preacher. And then another barber turns and he's like, I think he said preacher. And he's like, yes, preacher. And then all of a sudden, it's like the air got sucked out of the room. The Holy Spirit came down or something because for the next 10 minutes, the barbershop was quiet. It was like some sort of conviction came into that room, all right? I still didn't say nothing. I just smiled. But that was, that, it's just, these are the memories that I'm building with my child, you know? These are the experiences. And then when I look down at verse 10, and it says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. When it says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him, I think about it. I think about the fact that I've only had four years with my son. My closeness is only for four years. Some of you have been with your children much longer than that. But the father has been with the son before the beginning. The father has always been with the son, Jesus Christ. And when this verse says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him, that word please there in Hebrew is the word kafe. Cafe. It means to delight over, to take joy in, to be pleased. I read that verse and I'm just like, how can a father be pleased to see the brutality, to see the death of his son? Because I could not stand my son being hurt. I could never offer my son for anyone's life. But this father, he watches his son carry a cross, being spit on, being mocked and insulted. He watches his son being beaten and whipped, stripped naked, nailed to a cross, his hands and his feet, a thorn of crowns placed on his head, laying there dying and it says that the father is pleased he takes delight how can God take delight in the death of his son how can a loving father take delight in the suffering of his son there's only one way I can reconcile that it's that what the son's death accomplished brought great joy to the father even though his heart was breaking. Even though the, fa- the father's heart was breaking over the, the brutality and the death that his son was facing, he looked over at us and saw what the death accomplished and it brought joy to him. The fact that our sin was being paid in full, the fact that we would suffer no more, the fact that our relationship to the Father would be restored. It brought so much joy to the Father. And so, the death of the Son, it was the pleasure of the Father. And Hebrews also tells us that Jesus, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross. They were both pleased in the death. Look at verse 1 now. Verse 1 says, Who had believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? I want to ask you a question now. 
Do you really believe this message? Do you really believe this message? Isaiah 53 is the gospel. Do you really believe the gospel? Do you really believe it? Because there are so many in the church that know this intellectually, but they don't really live like they believe it. Can I tell you something? When Jesus said that there will be many that say, Lord, Lord, and do many works in his name, and one day he will turn to them and say, but I never knew you. Is this just up here? Is it just a cognitive reality to you? Or do you really believe the gospel? Do you really believe it? Do you confess your faith, but really live in unbelief? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 8. Let me read that. In 2 Peter chapter 2, I mean, I mean 2 Peter chapter 1, it says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, pay attention to this. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. What What happens? Do we really believe this? What happens is this. When we forget the gospel... When we forget the gospel, we are ineffective in our lives as Christians. When we forget the gospel, we are ineffective in our faith. Isaiah says, do you really believe this? So my question once again is, do you really believe the gospel? Now, this is the gospel. This is the message that Isaiah has for his people. This is the message that Isaiah has for us. And why do I say that this is the one message that we need to believe? Because there are so many messages happening in this world that are being thrown at us. There are so many narratives, so many cultural stories that the world would have us believe. And you know what one of it is? One of it is this. God is holy, yes, but I can meet up to his standard. I can meet up to the standard by being a good person. And when you believe that story, you know what it says? It says that you have a very low view of God's holiness. You know what the other story is? The other story is God is love, so God must love everybody. God must accept everybody, and so I can do whatever I want. He'll love me. But you know what? Yes, God is love. But God also 
not t- he doesn't tell you that he loves you. He shows you that he loves you. And Isaiah 53 is a picture of how he loves you. But you need to believe that and not anything else. And you know what? Let me give you one more example of how the world is subconsciously or consciously molding our heart each day. Because when you sit right now for this one hour of the word, the word is molding your heart. The gospel is penetrating your heart and God is doing a work in your life. But those other 23 hours in the day, you know what's happening? Culture is molding you if you are not in the world, in the word. If you are not doing something with the gospel, which I'm about to tell you what you need to do, then guess what? Culture molds you. And you know how culture molds you? And you want me to give you an example of how culture molds your heart subconsciously? We'll take a look at the checkout line at Stop and Shop. When you're at the checkout line at Stop and Shop, what do you see to the left and the right? There's a few things that you see. First of all, you see all these magazines, right? For example, you see the Cosmopolitan. What does the Cosmopolitan tell you? That it's all about sex. 15 techniques to do this. 13 ways to improve being a girlfriend. And all that, all your value is placed on sex. And we idolize it. We idolize it. And then you look, you look to the left and what do you see? You see glamour. You see vogue. And what's that telling you? That your, your worth is based on how you look. And we idolize beauty. That you find your acceptance in beauty. And then what do we see? We see men's health. Right? That, that, that we, are, we, are, we can't be who we, are, we intend to be if we don't take care of our bodies. You know, that, that we need to live a certain lifestyle, that we need to exercise, that we need to look a certain way. What else do we see? You know what? Forget the, forget the left side. Look over to the right. What do you see on the right side? The bar of Snickers, the Twix, the toothbrushes, all those things that do what? Provide convenience, right? That provide something for you for an instant gratification, right? So what is the world telling you? What you? Whatever you need, get it right now. And then, you know what, let me go back to the left side. What do we see now? We see, um, we see US, uh, US Weekly, we see the Time Magazine. What does that tell us? It's about knowledge, it's about information, right? That, that you, your worth is equated to what you know? Is that what culture's telling us? Look down, you see Forbes, fortune and money. And then what does that tell you? That your appreciation, that your security, your significance, it all lies in what you possess. Last one, this is your favorite one probably. People Magazine, right? What does that tell you? We give all our attention. We give all our affection. We start to idolize celebrity status. That we need to have fame, we need to, to, to know what's happening in Hollywood, we need to dress the way they dress. Is that, is that what gives us satisfaction? Is that what gives us security? Is that what gives us significance? So these are all the cultural narratives that are being thrown our way. These are, the, this is the message that goes against the gospel. And how do we combat it? Milton Vincent in his book, um, The Gospel Primer for Christians, He gives this concept of preaching the gospel to yourselves on a daily basis because it is the gospel that changes you. Not a motivational speech by me. It is the power of the gospel preached to you on a daily basis that will change your life. 
from the inside out. And let me read a quote. Let me read a quote from the book. And if you want to pick it up, once again, it's Gospel Primer for Christians by Milton Vincent. And he says, Preaching the gospel to myself each day mounts a powerful assault against my pride and serves to establish humility in its place. Nothing suffocates my pride more than daily reminders regarding the glory of my God, the gravity of my sins, and the crucifixion of God's own Son in my place. Also, the gracious love of God lavished on me because of Christ's death is always humbling to remember, especially when viewed against the backdrop of the hell I deserve. Guys, the gospel is not the starting point for salvation, no. The gospel it is what keeps us sanctified. The gospel is what keeps us going. The gospel is what should move us as I invite the worship team to come up. The gospel is the good news that touches every single aspect of our life. It is the gospel. Isaiah 53 is the gospel. It is that Jesus Christ saved us from suffering and sin through his substitutionary death on the cross. And in exchange for his death, we get to experience his life. We get to experience forgiveness. We get to experience healing. We get to experience peace, joy, comfort. There is an exchange that happens. There is an exchange that happens. And we can't experience the exchange. You cannot experience what he has to offer if you don't really believe the gospel. And Tim Keller says this, and he, he says it much better than I can say it, so I'm just going to read this. God's grace moves you when you realize that God is so holy that he couldn't shrug evil off. And he's so loving that he couldn't just punish us for it. He's so holy that he had to die for you. And he's so loving that he was glad to die for you. Only when you see what it costs God to save you will you really start to change. It humbles you because you're a sinner, but it boldens you knowing that you're so loved. He's infinitely holy and infinitely loving, so his grace is costly. As I close off, I just want to share a story from a book called The Tale of Two Cities. And Tale of Two Cities is about two men, uh, uh, Charles Darnay and Sidney Carlton, and they're vying for the love of this one woman. And in the end, this woman, she chooses Charles Darnay. And they end up getting married, and they end up having a family together. And the story takes place during the French Revolution. And so Charles Darnay, he eventually gets imprisoned uh, for treason. And Sidney Carlton sees what happens, and what Sidney Carlton does is he breaks into the prison where Charles is being kept, and he says, listen, I need you to change clothes with me. I'm going to take your place. And Charles Darnay says, no, you're never going to do that. I'll never let you do that. So Sidney realizes he's not going to let him do it willingly. So he knocks him over the head, he knocks him out cold, 
And then while he's out, he changes his clothes. And he has his friends come and take Charles out of the prison. And then, he, and then he's in the corner. He's sitting there in Charles' clothes. And then there's a seamstress girl in the same prison. She comes over to, to Sydney. She looks over at Sydney because she, she thought it was Charles. She thought it was somebody she knew from the past. But then when she looks at him, she realizes that it's not really Charles. She realizes that it's someone else taking the place of Charles. And this is what, this is what she says. Her eyes get big. And she says, are you dying for him? And he says, shh, yes, and for his wife and children. And she goes, stranger, I don't think I can face my death, but can I hold your hand? Because if someone as brave and loving as you holds my hand, I think I'll be okay. He wasn't even dying for her, but it strengthened her. How much more should the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ strengthen us and give us peace?